if everyone, I'm just going to talk as if everybody knows what I'm talking about. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, please interject at any time. But basically, it's like, you know, Kirby, of course, created Captain America, the Fantastic Four. and But then in the 70s, when he went back to Marvel, he was doing these really crazy books like 2001, which was essentially based on the movie. But it really, by issue five, had nothing to do with the movie. <laughs> and um, what's really interesting about this comic um, is, can you scroll ahead a couple of things? And it's like, it starts off as this crazy battle. And a couple more? And then, you know, he goes to the source, which is, if you remember 2001, uh, the black monolith, right? I call it the source. And, um, and <laughs> can you scroll ahead one more time? And then so he's, he's coming out of this, this battle. One more, one more. And then it's, it's just like, it's all, keep going, one more. One more. <laughs> one more. Oh, what? One more. What? Next what? issue. Yeah, where's the... Where's the locker room? Oh, you make it in. That's oh, oh, bummer. Anyway, so it's like a, oh, it's a game. Part. So it's like, uh, it's like, it's basically like he lives. You know, it's like hero. Was it Heroesville? Yeah, it's like it's Comicsville. Comicsville. So it's like a game. It's like a virtual reality game. So this whole episode in the beginning is just this game, but it's like to me it was like this kind of treaties on like Kirby's just idea of like what you know, being a hero is or was, and then it was just like, it's a game, it's like a sport. And I think he was kind of like, it was like transparent about what all of his comics are about. So to me, this particular comic kind of wraps it all up. I really, I hoard this comic whenever I see it in the bargain bins. And um, it's just, I, a lot of people don't like this late style, but I think this is the kind of style that I think is um, carrying on, you know, it's still, I think, is very fresh. It's not like his old stuff. It's really different. I think it's really ahead of the curve. And um, I'm running out of steam. When did this come out in comparison with the New God stuff? This was after the New God stuff. So this is post-DC. He got canned from DC. All of his DC books got um, canceled. And then he went back to Marvel. And that's when this is around the time he was doing Eternals, um, Devil Dinosaur... Uh, you know the the Black Captain Panther. America Black Panther stuff. Anybody read that Captain America Mad Bomb issue? <laughs> those issues, those are really great. But um, anybody else want to riff? Well, you know her? what? If I could, yeah. you know what I find really interesting about his 2001 stuff is that it's almost like a mantra. You buy every issue, and as a kid, you'd probably feel ripped off because every issue goes exactly the same. At the end of the issue, a caveman or someone back in time meets the monolith. The end. Next right. issue, same thing. Right, right. And it's it's almost like a, a reading, uh, you know, like Gerald Jablonski's comics. You know, it becomes like a mantra. It's this repetition, and it's kind of fascinating reading each and every issue because even the series like basically he did a treasury edition of 2001 yeah. insane which yeah. is insane it's massive Beautiful. it's huge you know it's those gorgeous oversized treasuries remember those things from the 70s so it's this it's the it's a it's the adaptation of the movie right yeah. but it's totally different it's kirby style you know it makes no some, sense he got some the, production stills from the movie that you can see that he directly swiped from yeah. and then he just connected it with like just kirby stuff yeah 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 and kirby um, was such a collage artist too so in the treasury edition there's all these crazy collages the sequence right after this when it moves into the reality is really nice too because the reality turns out to not i don't know if he's the, yeah well there's this yeah, yeah. yeah so see he's this playing is this is game a, this isn't real 
So it's like sometimes when I would pick like up these self heat chicken dinner, like you know, he's in this like he lives in this giant apartment complex, and then it's just this thing, you know, and it's just, what is this mountain air? But that beach, you know, that like, beach scene isn't real. It's so it's all, all matrix. Text. It's like matrix, right? It's all you know, like pre, but like whatever. Good, 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 good. Well, I was gonna say that when you you flip through a lot of these comics, my first reaction is that these are way too wordy. I don't know if you do. You have that feeling? They're wordy, but. But then in this sequence, you know, you flip through and you think that this is actually real, but all of the text is about how none of this, this isn't a real, you know, seascape and everything like that. It's a juxtaposition. Do you find that this is one of the more kind of Kareem doing a better job of mixing the two? Well, he wrote these, too. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, but sometimes the story just kind of isn't as strong as the art. Well, I mean... No, I like that. I think the story is equally strong as the art. Like, I mean... Go ahead. Well, I, I don't think he would do this the Marvel style if he was doing it for himself, right? Right. I would have thought with, with the wordiness that this was in the Marvel style, where because the, the, the story looks so clear with the, that page layout, and then all these words are just kind of scotch tape on top of it, which is kind of the Marvel style, right? Like, well, but he wrote all of Kirby's stuff. You look at the originals, like in the Kirby Collector or whatever, like all of his stuff, like he has almost all the dialogue written in the sides or on the back, and then Stan or whomever just kind of like cleaned it up a little bit you know but like so I think that it it's he's still doing it in that style you know in that mm -hmm. way but it's just like I think he because I think Mike Royer edited these also like so he kind of like helped clean them up but to me this was like a real gateway comic like just to go back to the main thrust of the panel was like like I was really into Kirby but then this was way out there like I didn't like his 70s style I thought it was really whack and I just hated it for a long time and it took me a long time to get into it but to me, this is like, this starts heading into this alternate world, like, al I don't want to say alternative comics, but it's just so different from what he'd been doing for the 20 years previous that, like, I feel like this is what ends up influencing the current generation, you know, so. So do you think then, thank you, Dad. Yeah, you still like those. Can you, can you guys, guys hear at the back okay? Yeah. Can you hear when we don't If you want, mic? if anyone wants to jump in, jump in. Not, but not while I'm talking. Wait till I'm done talking before you jump in. The question I had was, <laughs> do, do you guys think that, because this is an interesting idea to me, that, that these 70s Kirby and, and the other 70s kind of weirdo comics that Frank loves and uh, can't stop talking about, were direct, like, antecedent to the alternative comics of the late 80s and early 90s and the, the Love and Rockets and all that kind of stuff, because that's... I mean, is there a through line from that to now? To me, there is, because the Hernandez Rockets, brothers, yeah. they, those were done in the Marvel style. You were talking about the, Gar the Gilbert Hernandez comics. Like, he just, he doesn't even know what the conversations are. He comes back in. Yeah, yeah. And then my friend was talking to Gilbert Hernandez, or no, my friend was talking to Jaime and said, like, isn't that really hard, like, to do it that way? No, and then it's Jaime, all, it's a visual medium. Oh, well. Good. <laughs> Jaime said that it was really hard for Gilbert, but he, like, he doesn't know any other way to do it. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know. Huh. Well, it's interesting when you look at the early Love Rockets with their kind of far out sci-fi stuff, well, especially Jaime, his stuff at that point. Yeah. The early mechanics stuff. Yeah, the early, like, Lo Love and Rockets, when it started in the early 70s, is like, or late 70s, sorry. Late 70s is like, you know, so sci-fi and not really focused on the characters so much. It was way more just like, whatever, like this potpourri of like whatever they wanted to do. Like Beto's story, first story in the first Love and Rockets is a science fiction story. Uh, Jaime was doing a lot of science fiction stories, and I think, and I know they were reading this stuff. I know they're big fans of this stuff. So it's like, I guess we're just trying to say that 
the only comic I mean to me like you know like I started and I've always read comics but like you know I was what 15 in, in 1986 when uh, Watchmen and Dark Knight came out and stuff and that was those were the only comics that were available like you know like there was no Yummy Fur there was no 8 Ball there was no nothing like you know the only stuff that you could read was this mainstream stuff and if you didn't like what was out there before you'd go into the long boxes at the store and you'd start like sifting through things and that's how I discovered this you know this stuff is just like you know that was it like if you were working in the medium you had to kind of like work for Marvel work for DC work for Atlas or these smaller companies and like you kind of had to rub up against the limitations of the form you know like this is all you had available so you're going to do some wacky science fiction story you know for some anthology or something you know and I find it, it, you know, with Kirby's style, it also sort of stuck out. I mean, I remember, you know, in my in my rough adolescence, you know, reading, you know, all these mainstream comic books and having this revulsion to Kirby. I found it actually completely and utterly repulsive. Yeah, yeah. And yet, as a child, one of the first comic books that got me all excited about comic books was this coverless thing in my grandma's house of, like, Superman and Jimmy Olsen going to a miniature genetically altered planet of monsters. And it was by Kirby. It was from a Jimmy Olsen thing. As a child, it was great, but adolescence, there was, and I've talked to other people about this, there was almost this weird repulsion. And then you coming back to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I got um, I got into Kirby from Bruce Timm because I was really into the Batman the Animated Series and Bruce Timm would talk about Kirby all the time. But then you go back, I think, you know, everyone like gets history in reverse, you know? Yeah, yeah, you start researching like what what influences do you, what influences that? You wanna, that's how people get into movies. Yeah. Everybody know about Steranko? Steranko, Jim Steranko? Escape artist. Skate artist. Yeah, so Steranko, like, after Kirby, like, the big, like, Kirby was a big deal in the, in the 60s, but then in the late 60s, there was this guy who was really kind of, like, the, the new regime was Jim Steranko, James Steranko. He took Kirby's style and just kind of, like, made it really designy and really kind of modern. Kind of like a deco pop, almost. Deco pop is a good way of describing it. And then... This this particular story on the right, this is Bernie Krigstein from the late 50s, and um, this is a Stranko story from the early 70s and a horror comic for Marvel. Can we click ahead one? Yeah. And so you can see, like, he's doing all these really wacky, like, layouts and stuff like that. It's not very, like, this face is very Kirby to me, and a lot of the figures are very Kirby, but as Dash likes to point out, like, the, like a lot of his... Like, if you think Kirby's kind of anatomy is messed up, like, Steranko's is even more messed up. You know, he's just kind of, like, doing it. So a lot of these figures are really cut-out figures and stuff, but he's doing a lot of things with time that harken back to what Kriegstein was doing yeah, in like the 50s. The Kriegstein comic is Master Race that Spiegelman likes so much to talk about. He did an article in The New Yorker about it. Yeah. I think he first did an essay back in the So you can see, like, this is a subway going by, and it's, like, all the, like, the figure going by fast. But he's breaking up the time like way differently I mean this is like so this 59 this is earlier than that really I want to hear Frank uh, you've called this cinematic before those panels and I've heard that used a lot I don't know if you use it why do you think people people call those kind of panel you know tall oh the tall panels like in you know because it breaks up the time differently I think it's like you know it's it's a way of like you know Kirby's all about like it's not instantaneous moment to moment. It's more like uh, like every 10 seconds or something. You know, you see the punch and then you see the reaction. You see, 
But like he's doing like every, you know, this is like five seconds or whatever, you know, and then this is like an instantaneous thing. Cinematic, I get, I think so, but it's just more like. I, I think Steranko's cinematic in the sense of his framing, I think. Like, his framing right. is way more... If you scroll to those long, long horizontal frames, like this. Oh, this, yeah. Well, I think that's cinematic because it's, it's like, in the late... You know, everybody went panorama in the, in the 60s, so it's like, you know, to, to like... He's, your, your eye, I think, is going across It's kind of like the old Orson Welles, like, you know, Deep focus. Yeah. That, like, the pan. Yeah. You know what I was thinking? I, I was looking at these, and I was, speaking of cinematic, I was really thinking that Steranko's a lot like Brian De Palma. And that's because uh, both De Palma and both Steranko, for a lot of reasons, actually, they both use a lot of genre tropes. Like, this is a, you know, a, a, an old dark house kind of story. And also, De Palma would always make you conscious that you were watching a film. And I think Steranko makes you really conscious that you're reading a comic, and that's with the framing. I mean, De Palma would use a lot of split screen, and you see the way things are sort of divided up here. And uh, yeah, I, and also the way that they acknowledge the old masters. I mean, Steranko acknowledging Kriegstein and, and uh, Kirby, and you know, De Palma acknowledging Hitchcock most especially. But, I'm oh, sorry, but this is like a hermetically sealed world, you know, like, you know, this is like Steranko, Kirby, Kriegstein, you know, it's like it's all, they're influencing each other. It's a really small, like, you know, comics now can, are like so influenced by everything. Everything is allowed in the pot that like, I guess, again, just to get back to the thrust of the panel, it's just like there wasn't much to choose from. Like when I was, you know, like, you know, like I was growing up, like there wasn't much to look at. It's not funny. You know, and then, you know, and it's just like there wasn't there wasn't much to look at. You know, like we just had like this was it. So when you discovered this and you got into it, like at first it was I hated this stuff. It was too hard to read, too many words, too many panels. I didn't like Lake Kirby, but then you start to see it's like bebop or something. Like they're taking a melody and then they're changing it, and it's becoming different. It's not like becoming alternative comics, and they're writing stories about you know, their lives or autobiographical stuff, they're still staying in the model, they're still staying in the genre model. And so it's like, to be able to like, really change within that structure, I find really interesting. So it's just like, I just start talking about Marshall Rogers and, and Jim Stranko, like everybody knows, I just assume that people know that they've read that stuff. Well, you know, good. Also, I mean, you could see them change inside of the genre because they're paid to deliver like a certain number of page in a genre story Word. format. You yeah, know? and that doesn't like there like that kind of you know thing was going on in Japan and and it was but super with Marvel. Like, can you draw in this style? Can yeah. you do it like ten pages yeah. a week? You're hired. Yeah, right. You know, like, can you draw kind of like Tezuka? Can you do like thirty pages a week? You're All hired. right, you're hired. Yeah, right. You know that that doesn't. I don't. I don't have a lot of experience with contemporary Marvel comics, but I don't think that happens. I think we're all like in kind of this cult of originality, oh, where it's certain Wilders that can draw like Jim Lee style. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. But, but it's just like. But let me finish. No, but then at the same time, there also clearly are like house styles, you know, sure. that are like 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 drawn in quarterly books look like drawn in quarterly books. Fanographics books look like fanographics right. books. Marvel books like look like Marvel that's books. True. So it's kind of like this, but not. Uh, no, but but then like also I think the marketplace has changed the your at one's access to the stuff because it's like now comic shops don't really have um, boxes and boxes of old issues that you can kind of just root through you know or it's like it's like going record shopping and just like discovering old weird records or something like now everything's in CDs or you know downloads and so you're just not finding this 
weird stuff that's off the beaten path and like but there's so many reprints yeah I know but people don't know like they might see a Steranko book but they just like kind of flip through it like I mean I'm not saying that that's great that there's reprints but it's just like I just find that the access to that stuff is limited now and, and so that's what I, and I think you know Rob and I talk about this all the time like just like where it's not it's just not people just aren't reading it you know here's my question that like everything's being reprinted you can find all like all the curves that can reprint do you kind of feel like sometimes it's an over, it's too much? Like the fact that you've got this great eight page story mixed in with other stuff too. Right. Do you get what I'm saying? Sure. Like kind of less sensory overload of, you know, okay, I'm going to read Stranko, so I'm going to go read 120 pages of Nick Fury. And it's not necessarily as exciting as finding that eight pages. Like, wow, this is awesome in the back of a comic book heck. No, I agree with that. But I find, but it's just like that's the just the world we live in now. You know, it's just like uh, like I was talking about. The, you know, there was this Booty Rogers book that just got uh, uh, collected, and yeah, it's right out there, right out there. <laughs> and um, and it's just like it's great, but it is overload because I used to just find one of those books for ten dollars in a bin somewhere, and I'd be so excited because it was like this one thing. And like now, when I see a big nice collection of it, that's like a forty dollar book. Like I'm, I don't know. It's just like I'm. Maybe I'm just snobbish or something. But I would just rather buy the old comic for ten dollars. But that's just me. But it, it is kind of an overload. There's the fun so. of the, the hunt. You know, I think there's a. Um, I think a thing that animates a lot of these seventies books that I find lacking now. When you read them now, as a grown man in his thirties, rather than say, you know, finding them in a dollar box, is when you like when we were preparing for this panel, reading all this stuff. I don't come from a, a position where I read it at an earlier age and have a nostalgia thing. So like a lot of Marshall Rogers stories and a lot of Kirby stories, I just find the stories utterly lacking in terms of... Now, not to get into, yeah, are sure. these Kirby stories good or anything? Sure, but sure. The, the quality of the stories, the storytelling is amazing and the art is incredible. But the actual story, I can Oh, but well, who reads the know, stories? I'm just looking at the but art. That, <laughs> I, think that, I think that an interesting thing about that is, is because of the strange art-slash-commerce style of comics, from the you know the 30s sure. all the way to now, but yeah. really in the 70s, what can we put out a horror book? What about Frankenstein? Let's do that. Yeah, you yeah. Know, just and they're just ass. There's just a lot of ass books. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's just a lot of crazy <laughs> stuff going in the 70s. Yeah. And so the idea that these geniuses were laboring in this kind of pigeon um, industry in this pigeon culture, doing these dumb—it's like Phil K. Dick writing. Well, you know, 50 yeah, but these guys had way more readers than anyone right. now is going to have. Like, way more readers. So is everybody familiar with Ditko, these stories? enough? We're losing people, so I'm like, you know, anybody wants to jump in. You know? um, but this is like a... This Talk is about the, Jim Lee some more. This is the first, <laughs> this is the first uh, Dormammu. Um, this is a Doctor Strange number 126. 26, yeah. Strange, Strange Tales. Tales. Sorry, Strange Tales, number 126. And, um, but this is, uh, anybody in, into Brendan McCarthy? Yeah, Brendan McCarthy. So this is, like, his favorite shit in the world. And, like, what I love about Ditko is just, like, the organization of space, the color, the color holds, um, just these, like, really interesting shapes that he's doing. I mean, it's just, like, it's like Dali comics or something. There's one panel that I really, like, got a big kick out of. But like, look at this stuff. It's like, totally insane. The design. We never like did drugs. The, the design. Right. The top corner. Of the oh head. yeah. Look at that. I swiped this girl's hair, hair for a comic. 
You know what I like about it is that, you know, I read the Ditko Spider-Man stuff, and I personally get really bored. I, I get bored reading them. The fight scenes, it's just like these endless fight scenes, and I just I just can't take it. I but just like I, I read these. Yeah. yeah, I like the melodrama. I want to know what Peter Parker's going to do yeah, after yeah. school. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, like, you know, is Flash going to beat him up? But what I like about this is that... Uh, there's no, like the fight scenes, they all have to be done using mystic cosmic powers and weird rays and stuff. It's got to be more... Uh, it, the art so makes it more interesting. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, there's no ground for most of the time. So it's really playing like you, you, they're just floating in this odd... Yeah, there's no ground. There's nothing that, like, hold, there's no gravity almost, yeah. And there's all this nice white space and color, color back. Have you got anybody... So you guys are familiar with this stuff, or...? Most people are, yeah. Okay, go. Did, did you read the uh, the new book that came out about Ditko, the Strange World of Steve? I actually yeah. have not. I've looked at it. It's good. You've got to read this book. It's a fantastic book. About it. Yeah, I liked it a lot too. Well, like here's some comment that I thought was really impressive about this book, and you know, I was a big fan of Ditko for many years. But was the, they were comparing Ditko to Kirby, how Kirby had this sort of monumentalism about his work. You know, everything was like everything seemed to be built out of brick. You know, he's doing his his figures. And Ditko, when you read a Ditko comic, it moved, right? right? Like it was like there was always a sense of flowing movement from panel to panel. And you watch Spider-Man, and you, uh, I've read Spider-Man again with Ditko. It was like it's almost like ballet, you know. Like you know, Spider-Man also is not a lot of ground. He's often fighting in the sky, right? Yeah. And, uh, I don't know, there's a in a there's a part in that book where it shows um, a cover. A, a Kirby Spider-Man cover where the angle is down looking up at Spider-Man flying being this and it's talking about you know that monumental um, you know the, the great superheroes and then the and then the Ditko one is you're on the same plane as Spider-Man looking down at the people and so you're really flying with Spider-Man huh. that was his argument for for the Kirby Ditko comparison right? yeah, that, yeah that's that great you know what I really like? One, there's a lot of things to like about that that book that came out, but not only does it get into the art and really good writing about about Ditko's art, but for a book that has no interviews with the subject matter, it really gets into his because uh, he's so reclusive. It gets into his whole trajectory so well, and it gets into the whole Anne Rand stuff. And the thing that I really like about about Ditko, and which maybe there's a, a link to the modern stuff, is that he would uh, in his later stuff they're almost like political tracks. I mean, it goes on and on with objectivist uh, you know yeah. beliefs and and just dense pages of writing. These are his mostly like black and white stuff that. Like, you know, they're not that far off from reading, like, a Jack T. Chick comic or something. It's a man of extreme beliefs and really, really expressing those beliefs. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty fascinating to read. Well, you know, compare, like, Shay, you know, like, Big Toast 70s style, to say Kirby's. So I feel like Shay is a good analogy to some of Kirby's Marvel work in the 70s after the book That's interesting. Um, Tiny, dense know, panels. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I mean, it's way more personal. Yeah, like that was his book, kind of. It was really Ditko. It was really his. But you mean like dense, like? No, I think more is probably the personal expression would be maybe correlated to the fourth world Kirby, where you know, I think that was a more personal Kirby book, and I think the DC books that Ditko did there at the end. I don't see well, many people talk about that. That's what he's really, literally like him saying this is. That's cool. I, I, it's funny you say Shay, but it makes me think of the question. You remember the question, the guy yeah, that sure. didn't have like, and to me that was like the quintessential Ditko book, you know, because it was like this 
you know, this faceless man who's going to deliver justice, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. You want to come up here? It's really cosmic, <laughs> yeah. You know more than I do. Yeah, like the question in Hawk and Dove are so gritty and, you know, all about being on the streets and, you know, but you got the shade and it's so it's so crazy and cosmic like Kirby's stuff, yeah, it right? Seems, it seems almost like a little bit more Donald Strange there at the end, you know, before he went off and it didn't come through. Is that the old one? Mm -hmm. oh, no, it's not the new one, it's just the pictures that come through. Oh, that's good. Um, one thing that didn't make it through uh, is I put up this Alex Toad store and I'm sorry to jump from Ditko. But I mean, there's there's three people I I, we, I kind of feel like they're like major important work for like Kirby, Ditko, and like in another context, Wally Wood and Alex Toth. And Alex Toth um, is the kind of consummate, perfect cartoonist. And I was talking to Robert about this on the phone last night, where uh, Mazzuchelli's Year One work it's like a Toth comic that's written well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can I show you that the Toth comic that Mazzucchelli took everything from it's <laughs> House of Secrets one twelve. I can't remember, but it's just like there's this Toth story of like this hunter in the woods with these foxes, and it's all these trees and stuff. And if you remember that scene from Year One, where like the guys, yeah, it's like all this kind of line. Do it. It's not the. Uh, that's not the. But you remember in Year One, like issue He's two, when when uh, when. Flass and and Gordon fight in the woods, and they hate each other. Like that's like all these the trees. One, is it? Yeah, I think it's in number one. Their fight because he throws away his bat. He's like, I don't need that. Where's that bat or dirt? Is there's the bat? Oh, that's scene. that's the, oh, the later scene. the revenge scene. Kind yeah, of? yeah, yeah. When, when he, yeah. But it's Has just like one red year one. It is pretty much the only Batman comic you need to read. But it's like, yeah. But but again, like you know, like you don't have like a lot of kids, not kids, but I'm sorry, I'm like, I just noticed that like a lot of younger the kids inside, younger cartoonists or younger fans, like you know, they're just like opposed to reading Batman or opposed to reading these things. He's, uh, Batman Year One's like so popular with people my age. Yeah, Batman Year One is maybe my favorite comic book ever. Period. Has everybody read? That's you? right. Aaron's you know what I found really fascinating about year one is that it just ran in four issues of Batman and you look at what ran before it and after it and it's really it's direct it's kind of sad because the stuff that ran before it I think it was a Jim Starlin issue and Jim Starlin was like I always ignored Jim Starlin because I was so familiar with his stuff that his later yeah, stuff Trevor Von Eden did issue 400 remember that one <laughs> yeah yeah and so like these stand out so much and yeah. it's like what you guys are talking about like you know all the mainstream they comics getting it done on a monthly basis and it's it's the good stuff stands out yeah it's, yeah 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 it's good in its original format too because they recolored it once it was collected and it's even more jarring to see how far they pushed the coloring in the monthly book using the traditional coloring yeah, it was Mazzucchelli's wife, Richmond Lewis. Right. Yeah. The colors are amazing. Yeah. But again, I, I still maintain that this, like, things like Batman, what, 404 to 407 or 8, yeah, um, existing are in spite of comics, not because of comics. Like, like the early Frank Miller stuff that's amazing is, Frank, is just like a, a, every person's early oeuvre is, is them going, okay, within these constraints... I'm going to do this interesting stuff, but like Daredevil is a book about a dude that dresses up in red tights with devil horns. He's got the DD on it. The Daredevil can only ever be so good. You know what I mean? In order to enjoy Daredevil, you have to either buy it 
100%, or it has to be, you're, you're in that world to enjoy, oh. it can't exist on its own. Okay, do you guys, anybody familiar with Brian Chippendale? Yeah. Ninja? Okay. Brian Chippendale's favorite comic is Daredevil. Just in case you didn't know that. Brian Chippendale really wants to be Daredevil. <laughs> the guy can climb a telephone pole like I've never seen before. He really could be Daredevil. But he, and when he plays in his band, he wears a mask because he wants to be like Daredevil. Like, I mean, the kid is nuts, right? So his whole thing is Daredevil. He has every issue of Daredevil except for 87. I bought it for him in Secret Prison. But... But it's just like he's totally nuts, right? But like, like he's the most, he's the most like, I don't want to say he's the most avant-garde. He's one of the most avant-garde cartoonists today. But his favorite thing to read is Daredevil. So I guess like just to keep bringing it back to the, you know how these older mainstream comics influence the younger generation is that it's like he's pulling from Daredevil something to make a book like Ninja, and like. Stylistically, you couldn't see it, but maybe you could see it in the construction of the figures, the way each panel is leading into itself or whatever. But I just find that really fascinating that somebody who's a really left-of-center artist has a very right-of-center tastes. You know well, what I mean? I'm going to piggyback that because Gary Panter is a massive you know, friend of old Marvel. I mean, fun, I think certain of Kirby works on an interview with him, and he, he said, I've got my friend of Marvel membership card as well. So, like, I mean, he's very influenced by that, and I think that's kind of equal playing field. Work. Absolutely. You know, this work can work in different ways. Just because you're into Jack Kirby doesn't mean you're necessarily going to make X-Men. Right, right. But then, like, Gary's influenced by Kirby, and then Brian's influenced by Gary, and Brian can see Kirby in Gary, you know? So it's just like, I'm just trying to make, like, like, to me, I just assume that everybody sees that, and I'm not trying to, like, say this is how it is. I'm just saying that's what I see, you know? So it's just, like, that's what I'm just trying to, like, I mean... Like, yeah. Kim Deitch is a big Bill Everett fan. You right. I think of looking at his work, but he loves it. He's, kind of, he's talking about how he's got, like, all these, like, radical copies that people give to him and just treasures it. Yeah, and, and then Deitch, you're saying, is, in, like, an influence on... influenced so many people, and, like, how yeah. Stanley, how, like, you've got this link where you've got, you know, something like Bill Everett back in the Golden Age, and you've got Kim Dijkstra in the underground time and still very, very... Oh, sorry, now. Bill Everett created Submariner. Um, if you guys don't know... The, Human the, Torch. Human Torch, you know, was Friends like... like a fish. Doing a lot of stuff in the 1940s. It's um, Carl Burgess, wasn't it? Do you like Carl Bill Everett there, uh, Dustin? I do not. <laughs> well, there, there is a book about Bill Everett coming out from the yeah, same, same guy that did the Steve Ditko book. But, and then I'm saying, like, Kim Deitch is so influential on a lot of kids nowadays, like someone like Sammy Harcum, really influenced by Kim. So you've got these linkages, and I think it's important to recognize these linkages, because right now, in a kind of alternative medium, we're looking at this just being collected by Fanographics and Drawn Quarterly, and it's all fantastic work. Like, I'm excited as anyone else may consume me. But I think it's also important to recognize all these other things that may not necessarily be as... Um, Apparent, apparent, or yeah. appealing yeah. to say, you know, yeah, I, I like uh, Daredevil. Robert, why is that important as a reader? I'm reading comics for pleasure. Why is it important for me to recognize that? I think um, it's important in the fact that understanding comics is a literary tradition in itself. As far as it may not be in a, in a in a reader context, but I think it's good. Like when you find something you really like, 
to know what's behind it, and maybe you'll find something else you really like. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, obviously you don't have to be interested in it, but I think a lot of people get excited about seeing this big trickle-down effect, you know, of all of these people and what came before them. It's really kind of like a um, psychological thing, imagining what this person was reading at this time and what they liked, you know, like Deitch was like the underground comics were out, he read Bill Everett before, you know, Sammy, like he was reading Yummy Fur and, you know, the Deitch, and then he came there, and so he wants to do that, Deitch wanted to do that, other people want to do this. So... It, you know, it's a, just this big... Yeah, it's a continuum. It's an also, like, comics, comics is an oral tradition. You know, like, all art is really an oral tradition. Like, you learn the most from other artists, I think. You know, like, you know, if you're in... Like, you can talk... Like, the fan, like as a fan, you can kind of always, like, just jump around. But, you know, like, Alex Toth is the artist's artist. And why is because, like... He might look stiff and boring to some people, like designy or illustrative, but to a cartoonist, he one can really see what he was doing, and I think that's important to kind of talk about because it's like this trickle down thing that we're talking about, but also just like it's an oral tradition. It's like it's talking about these things and like the stuff that I learned, you know, the way I learned all this was just hanging around a comic shop and listening to the older guys like talk about the shit that they liked, you know, and it was like really informative to me in 1986, 7, 8, 9, you know, like, it's just like by the time Yummy Fur, I Never Liked You, or the Playboy, or those things get collected in the mid-90s, like, you can just, this is, uh, this is always my riff, is like, you can start at Chester Brown and have this amazing new history of comics and never have to read any of this stuff, and that's totally fine, and a lot of people are making comics with no interest and Marvel and DC and superheroes and sci-fi and that's fantastic but there is this other tradition that existed before comics sort of like had a renaissance you know uh, in the 90s I think you know so that's just you know why uh, Rob and I the idea for this whole panel was just because like we end up riffing about this stuff just to each other because a lot of the people that we're talking to like are like I don't know who you're t you know you know I don't know and then Robert even today was like showing me something that I've never seen before so it's kind of like a, you know, it's just like a club, you know, it's like, you know, you're just trading. I think you know, turning people on. I'm throw on something quick, is in an, in an academic context, I'm in school right now, and I look at what my school's providing as far as understanding comics, you're basically reading Persepolis, Mos, and Fano. <laughs> and that's not, to me, that's, you know, they're all great books, but to understand comics, you've got to look beyond. So I'm in this class, and I'm like, I think they hated me. I, you know, you might want me in a class on <laughs> comics. And it's just like, well, what about this? Look at this, look at this. And it's like, we've got to look at this continuum, like, understand. Before Spiegelman, there was, you know, Krigstein. Yeah, question about that.
Just because Superman's in the comic doesn't mean it's bad. But I also you think know, that, oh, I'm sorry, just to, what is it, Fun Home, Persepolis, and Mouse. Mouse. Like, Fun Home, Persepolis, and Mouse, like, are all kind of hermetically sealed. Like, they're not, they're li- literary comics in the sense that they're just kind of memoirs that happen to have pictures. You know, Persepolis, I liked when it came out, but I don't really like it now. Like, Fun Home, the words... The pictures illustrate the words. Mouths, the pictures illustrate the words. You know, I find them kind of like they're not within the tradition, really. You know, it's like they're, you know, go ahead, Bill. That's not true, though. I mean, because people have been like the greatest human comics. You're a little biased, but I'll let that go. But, um, you know, he is the greatest comic, but he wants, he wants, okay, one more. It's just like he is the greatest student of comics, that's true, but I think you know he was trying to break through to Actually, something else, you know? I got one thing to say. I so I, the greatest student of comics on the comics he likes. Mm. He's not going to talk about Jack Kirby. He'll talk in hours and end about Harvey Kirkman. Right. But he's well, not going to talk. That raises another valuable point, that these things are generational. Like, there are people who are inspired by the DC comics to make underground comics. Absolutely. Could I... Okay. May I give a good example? Um, just as a, can I step in? Uh, you know, I would, uh, for example, I would never give my girlfriend an issue of Daredevil as a gateway comic. You know, that's that's stated. But last year, for example, there was the uh, the Crazy Show, which was at the uh, Vancouver Art Gallery, and the comic section was uh, one of the curators was it's Art Spiegelman. By Spiegelman and they deliberately avoided any genre. There was no genre. So. And you know, it was there was a lot of great stuff to see on, in the show, but the show almost completely lacked in any sense of dynamics whatsoever. There was everything was kind of flat, except for one story, a Harvey Kurtzman story, and it was a war comic. So here he's saying he's avoiding genre, and he there's puts up a war, war comic. The one thing with dynamics there was in it. Auto bio stuff. Yeah, those are genres too. Yeah. But like, it's, you know what I like? Auto standard bio is a genre. Pulp genres. Who, pulp genres. Autobiographical comics are a genre as much as people want to disagree with that. But these people who are teaching at the colleges, they don't know what to do, you know? Like, like oh, like, Watchmen's great, but, like, this this was serialized in pamphlets. Comics is such a crazy, weird history. But then you have Persepolis right there, and it's like, well, this is like a book. Yeah. It's a memoir. Yeah. You get it. You know, this wasn't originally done meeting some weird restrictions. Right. Okay, so... I wanna Good. Um, do you think uh, a lot of this? I mean, you mentioned a Renaissance from the nineties, but I feel like a lot of this sort of like revision of the history of comics is sort of like in the nineties you suddenly got trained paperback. Yeah. Everything's collected in very you know organized fashion. If you wanted to find comics before that, you had to like lurk around comic stores and just sort of like get suggestions from your friends and just snip out what you could find. Absolutely, but I meant that the Renaissance was also part of the marketplace. You know, the marketplace yeah. sort of dictated how that renaissance was going to take place and that's why I think you have a lot of people who are making comics for the marketplace now and they're kind of taking the bait for the book publishers you know they're just going to make novels you know yeah just like the people who where it was all serialized comics took the bait and did serialized comics absolutely but that was the that was the only marketplace now there's 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 choices now but like I want to do a monthly comic for you know Marvel or DC but you know they won't have me, you know, or whatever, you know. So it's just like, it's just that kind of thing. They're lost. That's the real <laughs> story of this panel. The real story is I'm just as frustrated as bitter. Are you not the alternative collection they're putting out the Marvel one? What? They're putting out a collection of alternative people doing I like a bizarro stuff. world thing. Scuba Bebop? Oh, I'm, I'm in that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
All right, any questions? There's one, yeah, another question. Oh, no, I was just can you speak up a little bit? Oh, sorry. Uh, their background is coming from a kind of traditional literate, like looking at their English literature. They're not looking at it as a vision at all. Right. And that's just it. That's what we're saying. Is. Get, yeah, I have to get, get across the idea that there's a well, because there's not a there's not a critical infrastructure to talk about visual comics. There's a there's a critical infrastructure to talk about literary traditions, but there's not a there's not a vocabulary to talk about purely visual comics. I just want to respond to, to one thing you mentioned, the Scott McCloud thing, and that is something a lot of instructors gravitate towards. Which you know, it's a great book, but I think it doesn't accurately capture what comics is to me. Like understanding comics is kind of understanding Scott McCloud's take on comics, but to me it's not how what I get from comics. And I think that's, I don't want to say dangerous, but the fact that people that, that people rely on this book so heavily, and I have worlds of respect for Scott, um, but it's not, I don't think it's the textbook that it is. You know, it needs an accompanying, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I, think, I think that's a problem with a lot of criticism in, in any Medium, whether it's comics or plays or, or opera or whatever, is the. Uh, I mean, you're always going to be able to disagree with a critic. Say, well, that I thought that play was great. Or I thought that that new T Pain album was really sweet. I love these things are really cute. But like to to tie that to Jim's point with the idea of is it important to know what, for instance, Dash influences Dash when he's making a book? Like I probably it is fascinating to me to hear Dash talk about that stuff because I probably enjoyed. Bottomless belly button more than all the Marvel comics I've ever read put together. Whoa. I'm just saying it's a quality. Let's not go there. Like, <laughs> no, 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 I'm not, it's not a comparison. I'm just saying when I read a Mar if I read a Spider-Man comic, I'm not like, has this enriched my life in some way? I mean, I'm probably moving my bowels. You know, it's probably just like, what's the, the stupidest thing that I can read for the next 15 minutes or something like that? And when I sit down and read Bottomless Belly Button, I'm almost preparing. Really like, leave me out of this. I'm thinking about this <laughs> bottomless bowel movement. The, um, Man, you had to go to the toilet. Here. That's where I'm comfortable. Leave it to the Americans. But Whoa. in uh, my point is that it's more interesting for me to hear Dash talk about that stuff or to hear Frank break down a Kirby page than to actual, actually read those comments because I just don't find the stories very compelling. And so forth. So, so knowing that stuff informs my reading of, of like when I read Body Worlds, and I'll be thinking about what I'm hearing right now. But I don't think I don't think it's necessary. <laughs> you, you really want to go? No, 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 no. I'm like I'm just like I was like trying to. These. Yeah. I'm just thinking like a lot of this is sorry is reactionary. It's like I'm like like a lot of my like like I write you know comics comics blog and I and if I break down a Kirby page, it's like because. When I read a lot of criticism, they're just—it's like critical. It's a—it's writing about the words or the story, and there I rarely see people writing about how the visuals are working. It's because the know? people at these newspapers, you know, are the same people who are re writing reviews about normal books, and they're English majors, and so they're—you know—they they like majored in literature, and then they're like, "Oh, these comics are starting to sell. We should start reviewing these more in our book section." They're not in the art. Sections of the no, newspaper. I agree. No, I agree. And they don't know. They don't have the vocabulary, and they're not interested. 
Right, I don't think, right I mean, but so it has to start from the inside so, out. You there's know? so little just like discussion and newspaper criticism of comics about the pictures at all. Like that's crazy, and they never talk about it existing as an art object after reading. It's only that initial reading experience of you know the words. Right. I still think that the value to the reader of all of this is indirect. Is in the what? It's indirect. You know, I mean, it's, it's similar to understanding how a magician's trick works. As an audience member, it's better not to know that. Like, you go all over cartoonists, so of course you're... Well, aren't, aren't we a lot... Are we a lot of yeah, but, they, but, then, but they have a responsibility to their readers. Like, they're not really, like, portraying the book, you know, in the in its all of its glory, possibly. So, you, wait... Okay. So you're saying that the the critics for these newspapers don't need to talk about the visuals of the comics? The critics do. There's an academic value in it, and obviously if you're an inspired creator or creating comics, it's important. I'm saying as a reader, this is completely irrelevant to the reading experience and possibly detrimental to I, I don't agree the with criticism? that. I don't agree with that because it's like it's up to them to kind of like, you know, they're, especially for the newspapers, they're like trying to initiate a new audience to these works and it's sort of had, there's a responsibility I think they have to be able to like I'm not talking about the newspaper or the critics I'm saying a reader I'm going to go buy a comic book I'm going to read it I want to enjoy it yeah do you need to know all the men no absolutely I agree with that I agree with that no I agree with that well that's fine hi everyone this is just an announcement that go ahead, Bill. 1.30 to 2.30, so right now, there'll be a Books for Boys graphic novels for election yeah. readers panels. Join creators Eric White, Cranky Pickle, and the Closet of Doom, Frank Camuso, uh, and I the lunch table, Sullivan, Thanks. The Adventures of Rabbit, no. and Bear Paws, and Jay Torres, the Batman, the Brave, and the Bold. They'll be discussing writing for boy audiences and the tricks they use to turn elected readers to lifelong readers. It'll be in the Learning Center 1. I think if you're, yeah, if you're coming to this panel, you want to be an Go for it. I think the main thing is you enjoy comics. What? Let's see what that person enjoyed. If you like this, you might like this. And that's exactly it. Without being a commercial thing like the DCs, you like Watchmen. Here's the next thing to read. You like uh, Brendan Graham? Read Mobius. You'll love it if you haven't read Mobius. Like that's kind of like the context. These people love this stuff and reading it. It is fabulous work. There's so many great comics to read that people don't really know now. Like Mobius, good luck finding this stuff for affordable price, except for the horrible Inkle reprints that are recolored. Yeah, they're terrible. We're not gonna have time to get to the main installment. Huh? No, we're not. Any last questions? We gotta go. Oh, that. Anything? Hurts. Anything? Anybody? No. Thank you, you guys. Appreciate Thanks it. So much. <laughs> uh, one last thing. If you don't know Toad, 